0: You can't ride in my little red wagon. You can't ride in my little red wagon. Front seat's broken and the axle's dragging. Front seat's broken and the axle's dragging. Chugga, 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 chugga. Second verse, second verse, a whole lot louder and a whole lot... Ooh, what's up, y'all? This is Nick Bartlett. I'm a broadcast manager here at Sports Pack 12. I'm also a staff writer over at organsportsnews.com. And I've had over 50 articles featured in the Seattle Post and Tellinger, and this is going to be a sports Pac-12 original, the Nick Bartlett Show. So this is going to be a run-of-the-mill sports show, talking about Pac-12, hot topics of the week, and one thing I want to stress is that I'm not much different than you guys. Seriously, I work a day job. My opinion is no more valuable than yours, and I'm just grateful for your viewership, your listenership, and without further ado, let's get straight to some Pac-12 action. Thanks for tuning in. You all get it. This season is more confusing than arguably any other year in college football history. Fan bases around the conference are likely confused as to what is going to happen to their respective programs. As we enter week three of the Pac-12 season, ASU, Arizona, Cal, and UW have each had one matchup canceled, while Utah hasn't touched down on the field yet this year. With that being said, I understand the confusion among different fan bases, but again, with that being said, there's still a conference title up for grabs, and we can all do our best to enjoy this year, just like, well, any other season. Football is football, and while I can't speak for you, I've been fascinated by the action I've seen on the field thus far. One team who's grabbed my attention in 2020 has been the Colorado Buffs, surprisingly. They're off to a 2-0 start, proving some guy named Nick Bartley wrong. Uh, I may have said they'd suck all off-season. I think I've probably said that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely said that. And so, while I'm not convinced that they're a contender just yet, considering they could still finish the season with a losing record, I brought a guest on the show today who may think otherwise. And our guest today is Kieran Murphy, who is a staff writer at the CU Independent, co-host at Dash Sports and maybe most importantly, a student at the University of Colorado. He'll kick off today's show with approximately a 10-minute segment explaining why the Buffs have found success on the field this year, and if they have a realistic shot at winning the South, and maybe even the conference in totality. Following the opener, I'll discuss the Ducks' chances of making the CFP, and then we'll hop into a little bit of analysis on Stanford and the state of their current program. And as always... As always, we will end today's show with Bartlett's random topic of the day. I'm excited for this one. I get to bring back some memories. (laughs) Seriously, I'm excited. Thanks for tuning in as always, guys. Seriously, appreciate the love, support. Couldn't do it without y'all. Gosh, that's corny. Busted truth, so for real. And with that being stated, I'll kick it out east to Kieran, who will give us his take on the Colorado Buffs.
1: Hey there, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so I think when we're looking at the, the, the success that the CU football team has had, I think it, we have to start with Mel Tucker's departure in the spring. And I know that that's a funny place to start, but I think the fact that Mel Tucker left um, and sort of abandoned this team after only one season really sort of lit a fire in the bellies of both the players um, and the staff that Tucker ended up retaining um on the team you know when he left it was a particular punch in the gut to a lot of people um, both CU fans and you know obviously the players because when we brought him on as a coach coming as the defensive coordinator from Georgia I think it sort of signaled a shift in um, the way that CU was taking um, our culture sort of you know our football culture more seriously Um, you know up until then there had been this massive sort of complacency amongst um, amongst the team over the course of the last, you know, 25 years or so. Um, because, honestly, dating back to 1990 when we won the national championship, CU hadn't had any particularly outstanding years um, in recent memory. I mean, in 2016, we made it to the Pac-12 championship. But um, in that game, then we ended up getting blown out by University of Washington. And then in the two years following... Um, we had such poor years that Mac, uh, Mike McIntyre um, was fired as a result of it. Um, and so Mel Tucker coming in um, and having an okay year, by no means a good, great year, but an okay year. Um, given the circumstances that he was dealt, people had a lot of optimism about the sort of shift that CU was sort of committing to from a football cultural perspective and then for him to abandon the team after one year because and to go to Michigan State sort of signaling that the Pac-12 and CU just aren't good enough for a coach like that was quite a quite the punch in the gut and so then of course there's obviously this massive sort of cloud of uncertainty um surrounding what the future of CU football could look like um a because of the coronavirus of course and then um just who would be the next coach that could potentially still bring that same sort of culture shift to, um, to Boulder. And I'm not going to lie to you that I, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't know what to expect from Carl Durrell and I wasn't convinced that that was the right choice, but I, I, I truly didn't know enough about Carl Durrell's past in order to accurate, in order to give you a, a proper judgment about what that was going to look like. But I, what I will tell you is that me and my, co-host on Buffalo Dash on Dash Sports TV, Jason Marks, were talking a lot in the preseason about the fact that we saw this as more of an opportunity for CU to start a true freshman quarterback and to just completely rebuild from the ground up. And Carl Durrell took the opposite approach and instead has clearly shown that he wanted to give the you know existing players that he was dealt um, a real shot at, a real shot at having um, a chance to play and a chance to win. And um, I think that that really uh, surprised a lot of CU football fans. I mean, Sam Neuer is the perfect example, right? So Sam Neuer, Offensive Player of the Week this week, um, this past week, uh, for the Pac-12, um what has been on the team now for this is his fifth year um he redshirted his freshman year was the backup to Steven Montez the night the following two years and then was prepared to enter the transfer portal um this year because he uh played last year as a backup safety um on the buffs under Mel Tucker so Mel Tucker had completely written off Sam Noir and Carl Durrell comes in and Gives him the opportunity that he's been waiting for his entire college career, and what do you know? He starts performing at a level that everyone in the Pac-12 is wondering where the hell this kid come from, this kid came from. And so I think that um, Sam Noyer's uh, just sort of a, a perfect metaphor for the way that Durrell has approached the way that he wants to work with um, this team. And, you know, mind you, he hasn't recruited any of the players that he's coaching, right? Um, in the last three years, the, the fact that we've had three different coaches in the last three years is, you know, shows that there's been this sort of lack of consistency in leadership. And I think, you know, one of the smartest things that Durrell did in his, um, you know, a, as he came into Boulder was that he retained Darren Cheverini, Tucker's offensive coordinator, and Tyson Summers, Tucker's defensive coordinator, so that way these players would have some level of consistency from their coaching staff. Um, I think that that was the most important thing. And then I think the fact that the coronavirus is um, the coronavirus is, has has um the way that teams are able to have summer practices and things like that. Um, has really provided a platform actually for Durrell to uh, totally sort of turn things upside down here because he then doesn't have cameras in the locker room and cameras at practice sort of documenting all of the different ways that he's, um, you know, approaching different players and there's not as much pressure to play certain freshmen and things like that because uh, just the media wants you to. And instead Durrell's really got his guys focused on the task at hand, which is just simply to win football games. I mean, this, if this season's shown us anything, it's that because there's no fans in the stands, there's, it, in a lot of ways, it's sort of stripped down back, right back to the basics of what is important in each football game, game in and game out, which is simply to just win, not to put on a, any kind of show for 55,000 fans or so. And so that the, the fact that Durrell brought, you know, kept the consistency in the coaching staff and then was willing to give some new players a completely new shot at being successful under his program, um, I think is what got a lot of players to buy into him really early on. And it shows in the way that they play. So Durrell and his coaching staff, they play completely within themselves. Um, I think that They play a very conservative brand of football. Um, You know, we've seen a lot of uh, rushing yards um, by the Buffs throughout all of these games. I mean, they had, um, I mean, Jarek Broussard was the one who sort of carried them through that UCLA game. Um, And as well as Sam Neuer has been using his feet a lot. And Jaron Mangum, the true sophomore, has also been playing a major, major role in the CU offense because they've been not trying to throw 80 yard bombs or trick plays or anything like that, but instead just been playing completely within themselves game in and game out, which is something that I've been extremely impressed by and extremely excited by and is a completely different brand of football than what I'm used to seeing on the field in Folsom or elsewhere. Um, And I think that what this signals in the longer term is the fact that even though Sam Neuer, for example, who's leading this team right now, um, you know, just as the quarterback and as a fifth year, um, doesn't have eligibility next year, um, which is something to call into question because, you know, you could have argued perhaps, as I did earlier on in the preseason, that playing, uh, it's a, per- you know, what what better opportunity is there to play a true freshman quarterback? Well, what, what Durrell has done is put an emphasis on the fact that Sam Neuer can bring a level of leadership to the field. Dimitri Stanley, uh, the wide receiver, can bring a level of leadership to the field. Nate Landman, the inside linebacker, Mustafa Johnson, the outside uh, defensive end. You know, these are guys who have played an essential role on this team for three plus years, each of them. And he's given these guys some, uh, you know, some leadership and, and some autonomy on this team and let them really play a big role in helping to lead this CU football team you know to success this year. And so I think the fact that he's sort of seen this from a little bit of a of a 35,000 foot level rather than you know just seeing what kind of what what where the rawest talent is that he has on the field and instead choosing to put um le- you know trust and leadership in his seniors to be able to then create this uh, culture of you know, following the seniors and following their um, lead and you know, playing smart football rather than just showy football um, is really, really actually healthy for CU's football um, success in the longer term. And what I think that we could start to see from that is the fact that rather than You know, over the past few years, where fans have started to file out of Folsom Field uh, around halftime on a regular basis, I think instead there's something sort of poetic about the fact that the season in which Colorado is prohibited from having fans at the games is when they've taken these sort of actually massive, massive steps to rewrite the culture surrounding CU football and what CU could look like going forward. Which is why it gives me a lot of optimism that in a game against USC um, next week assuming that it gets played and there's no coronavirus interruptions and beyond that they not only have a chance to win the Pac-12 South, but to go farther and to win the Pac-12 championship as a whole and could have a lot, a lot of success down the road.
0: All right, guys, I'm back, but I want to make sure to thank Kieran again. He came on the show on extremely short notice. Seriously, I asked him or excuse me, we communicated on like Tuesday night for the first time and I'm recording this show on Wednesday night. So y'all gotta respect the short turnaround. I'm very grateful for real. All I would like to add about the buffs is that it should be very interesting to see how this team really performs the rest of the year. Should be very, very interesting. Sh- shut up, guys. Just sh- shut up. <laughs> Seriously, I know that was a blanket statement. That's why I brought an insider on the show. Anywho... Next on our agenda today is going to be the Oregon Ducks. Plain and simple, UO is still not perform well enough to make the college football playoff. Their first half against the Cougs was muddled with mistakes. They had three turnovers in the opening two quarters, which is not acceptable for a team hoping to compete for a national championship. More concerning, however, is that their defense allowed the Cougars to score 29 points. And on top of that, they allowed W. C. quarterback Jaden DeLora to throw for over 300 yards, allowed 150-plus yard receiver in Renard Bell, and couldn't stop Cougar running back Dion McIntosh, who averaged 5.8 yards per carry, tallying 91 yards in the game. The lack of consistency on offense combined with an average defensive performance is indicative of a team who's not really CFP potential. Not at all. And they're getting beat in essentially every facet on defense. This is a team who's really supposed to hang their hat on that side of the ball. And granted, WCU does have a good offense. Mike Leach was obviously running the air raid before. Nick Rolovich now transferred it into a run and shoot. But still, if you're considering the Ducks an elite defense, you cannot allow a freshman quarterback to throw for three bucks. Allow 150 plus yard receiver. We're not talking 100 yards. 150 and... A backup running back is averaging 5.8 yards per carry. Max Borey is supposed to be a starter for WSU. So Oregon needs to get better on this side of the ball. Plain and simple. That is not going to get it done for a team who's looking or wants to be considered for the college football playoff. With that being said, they have still looked like the best team in conference thus far. But remember, and this is an important thing to remember, I'm comparing them to the elite teams in the nation. However, there are two big positives the Ducks can take away from this contest going forward. Most importantly, and as Kieran touched on in his segment about the buffs, the Ducks won the game. I mean, a win's a win. Granted, it was ugly, but a win is a win. They're 2-0 and still control their own destiny. And another kind of confusing takeaway, or some people may find it confusing, but I kind of find it pretty darn clear. But anyways... Anytime a team commits three turnovers in a half and finds a way to win should be considered an outstanding performance. This team could have folded, but they scored that pivotal touchdown at the end of the second quarter and really found their rhythm the rest of the way. This result shows how talented Oregon's roster truly is. I mean, a team with a lesser talent level is not going to be able to commit three first half turnovers on the road and overcome it. And Oregon did this. So give them credit. Seriously, give them credit. As a Pac-12 fan and a guy who covers the conference in totality, we would like to see a little bit more out of the Ducks. I mean, we'd like to see them in the college football playoff. But they won the game. So we'll roll with that. Talent overcomes mistakes some of the time. And this is one of, one of those examples. The second positive is that 71-yard touchdown pass Tyler Shuck made on 3rd and six in the 4th quarter to Travis Dye. If Shuck didn't complete this pass... WC would have gotten the ball back with a chance to take a lead with more than eight minutes left in the game. These type of plays should build Chuck's confidence and the team's belief in their quarterback alike. Bottom line, fantastic play by the sophomore. And I can't stress this enough. That was big time, guys. That was big time. So big time that a firework actually went off in my neighborhood. I was watching the game and I watched on like a laptop using my dad's cable service. (laughs) Ha ha ha. And so there was a green firework that went off in my neighborhood and we've had fireworks go off for Seahawks games, a bunch of other things. People getting a little antsy, obviously locked up in our houses because it's 2020, but there was a random green solo firework. And so again, the laptop has a five second delay or 10 second. Sure enough, the next play was that long touchdown pass to die and the fireworks suddenly made sense. So for Ducks Nation out there, you do got one fan in Seattle. Maybe not more than one, but you do got at least one. And that was pretty cool to hear and see, honestly. So that's going to do it for my coverage on Oregon. We talked about Oregon and USC alike a bunch last week. So I actually want to spread it out and talk about a different team. And we're going to hop over to the Stanford Cardinal. And for David Shaw, this could be the downfall of their program. It really could be. Last year, they were decimated with offensive line injuries. And this year, granted, Davis Mills did miss the first game. And before he played the Buffs, he was literally locked in quarantine all week. I think that is important to understand. But that shouldn't have been a problem for Stanford. Over the last decade, you want to call it the Harbaugh-Shaw era, they've really controlled the trenches, and that's been their MO. So even with Davis Mills being in quarantine all week, you'd think that the Stanford offensive line would be able to control the Buffs, really control the game from start to finish. And they weren't able to do that. Their defense also got carved. There was that very long pass to Dimitri Stanley in the first half by the Buffs. So in past seasons, with or without a good quarterback, Stanford would have been able to hang in this game, plain and simple. It would have been low scoring. It would have been ugly, but they would have been in the game. They essentially got blown out by the Buffs. I mean, they did make a nice comeback in the third and fourth quarters, but time ran out. And is this it for Stanford? I mean, there's no other way to say it. This has been a dominant team in our conference over the last decade. Sometimes it's easy to forget that with the emergence of Oregon and Washington over the past couple seasons. And obviously USC usually has a lot of notoriety, but Stanford was that workhorse for a long time. Workhorse was not the right synonym. I'm rolling with it. And it's kind of hurts a little bit to see them fall. It really does. I don't know why I like the Cardinal program and just wondering, is this it? I mean, they're 0 two in a six game season coming off a losing season last year. And these things are going to start to add up. The one positive for them is that Cal got absolutely decimated by UCLA. So in terms of recruiting in the Bay, maybe Stanford will continue to have the upper hand they've had over the last handful of seasons I've only looked five years out, maybe even longer. Over the last five years, they dominated the recruiting. But anyways, this is just not the Stanford team we've come accustomed to see under David Shaw. And I don't want to question his coaching because he's arguably the best coach in conference. I actually, if you've been rock with me since the mailbag days, I personally believe Kyle Whittingham does hold that honor in the Pac-12. But a lot of people would arguably say that David Shaw is the best coach in conference. And i got to call him how I see him. He is not getting the job done. This year, he is not getting the job done. Plain and simple. Their matchup next week against WSU, that could be it. This could be a decade in the making gone in three games. Obviously, last season too. But this matchup against WSU is everything. And the Cardinal have a schedule. They could still win three out of their last four games. I had the schedule pulled up a little bit earlier. I know they still have Washington on their schedule. That's probably a loss. But they have Oregon State, WSU, and Cal, or the other three teams. And those games could all prove winnable. So the Cardinal could very realistically finish 3-3 and and salvage this season. But a loss to WSU next week is the downfall of one of the premier teams in our conference. And I don't know if I want to see that. I don't know if I'm ready to give up on Stanford just yet. But they have not looked a part of a dominant team the last two seasons. They've actually looked pretty terrible. Last week was the culmination of terrible football. And before the season began, I did pick, w, or excuse me, I picked Stanford to beat WSU. I'll stand by that pick. But the way it's looked for the first two weeks, WSU is by far looked like the better team. You want to look at their one common opponent, you got Oregon. And Stanford looked like booty against Oregon. Well, WSU was really beating them in the first half. Obviously, we discussed the turnovers already, but WSU was still... Went into the second half with the lead. Stanford sure as heck did not do that. So for the Cardinal, this is everything next week. They must beat the Cougs. And if not, it's the downfall of not quite a dynasty, but sure as all heck a premier team in our conference. So that's going to wrap it up for our football coverage today. We got the Buffs. We got Stanford. We got Oregon. But now, and oh yes, 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 yes. (laughs) <laughs> wow, you, you can't put these things in your notes. Sometimes things just happen. We are on Bartlett's random topic of the day. And I'm going to give you a clue, y'all. If y'all know it, y'all know this real quick. And you'll feel the love. So here's the clue. f f f fu Fina! Mr. Feeney! Feeney! <laughs> y'all know a show I'm talking about? Referencing Mr. Feeney, I'm talking about the legendary Boy Meets World. That show is absolutely amazing. Long been retired, but man, that was a show with morals. Like, they were talking about interracial marriages back in the 90s, and it wasn't like in your face, it was just kind of part of the plotline. It was just a beautiful, well written out, loving, heartwarming show you obviously had the cory topanga marry your high school sweetheart fall in love all those great things you had sean and cory reuniting as friends not reuniting always been best friends they got their goofy handshakes shows two kids from opposite sides of the tracks you got cory obviously from more of a stereotypical middle class family got sean hunter from the trailer park a lot of other great characters of course you got eric matthews the feeny call master like EM no one's ever called him EM seriously I could go on talking about Boy Meets World forever like I absolutely love that show I loved it so much that when the Disney channel made the rerun Girl Meets World about three years ago something like that I actually watched every episode I was a 27 year old man who watched every single episode of a show in the Disney world not ashamed at all my sister still makes fun of me for it but man I just love Boy Meets World and the reason why I'll actually get serious, like if you've seen the show, you know what it is. But it's just a show again, not so much the morals, but how it was so tied in and not in your face, and it showed varying aspects of life. And a couple examples of this is, as I mentioned, Sean Hunter grew up in a trailer park. There was there was an episode where they tried to get him into a cult, but it wasn't done in like a super exaggerated way. But they tried to get him in a cult. There was another episode where Sean ended up working for the mafia under the table. Wasn't thrown in your face. It was a kid show, so they didn't necessarily say it was the mafia. But as you get older, you start to pick up on some things. Cory Corey and Topanga. Obviously, like, the lover, the the whole, essentially, plot of the show based around them. <laughs> Cory be yelling out, like, I want to touch something! Because, <laughs> like, obviously, yeah, I've been laid by Topanga. And, like, just little things like that. It was just so well done. And I'm not going to lie. I do my best to not get attached to things. But I will always love that show, man. That, that show was a special place in my heart. Got me through some tough times. That... Fresh Prince of Bel Air and Modern Family are on that elite tier. Elite, 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 elite tier. They're like the Ohio States, the Alabama, the Clemsons of the world. I think since I'm going back to football, sounds like a good time to wrap up Boy Meets World. One more time for the people. Mr. Feeney! All right, guys, seriously. Boy Meets World is absolutely amazing. If you've not seen it, I would highly recommend watching it out. Start the older years, the younger years, a little bit kiddish, but if you catch them when they're in college, there's some real stuff to be learned in that show, much more than just a few laughs. So that's it for Bartlett's random topic of the day. Concluding today's episode, again, I want to thank Kieran for coming on the show. If you'd like to contact him, you can reach him on Twitter at K underscore Murph Again, that Twitter, again, that Twitter handle is K underscore M-U-R-P-H-2-4. And as for my take on the Buffs, should certainly prove an interesting team to watch the rest of the year. And that matchup with USC now has really significant South implications on the line. I certainly (laughs) did not predict this. Probably the furthest thing from it. In the North, Oregon does not look like a team worthy of being selected to the college football playoff, even though they won Three first-half turnovers is not conducive of a team who'd like to win a national championship. Next, we talked about the Stanford Cardinal and really analyzed, is this the downfall of their program? Getting beat in the trenches against Colorado really says something about the state of their program and next week is a must-win against WSU to save a decade of dominance. And finally, in Bartlett's random topic of the day, I was able to relive the Feeney call and explain why Boy Meets World is arguably the greatest show of all time. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And when I was at work today, a fourth grade girl asked me, like, what's my motto? What's my tagline? What's my phrase? I wasn't sure exactly what to say. But then I thought back to my show, and it came to me very convincingly. And if you've been listening for a while, you already know what it is. Cheetos and Tuna.